Hello and welcome and thank you for listening to the Ethnomediologue podcast. My name is Brett and this is episode number four, titled Representations. Hey there, what the hell is happening in the world? Times are tough right now and the best most of us can do is to work to protect those most vulnerable in our community. Keep our distance, provide support for essential services, and stay healthy and safe. Find community through the internet where you can and provide positive support for your friends and family. For today's episode, I want to talk about media representation. And one of the wild side effects of this global pandemic is watching media and the status quo unravel. The lack of government and corporate response and support is sadly not surprising, nor is the structure of how media is being used to spin the imagination of the novel coronavirus in cases of COVID-19, for which many people, especially in the US, have no access to adequate testing or care. It's a difficult and uncertain time, and my hope is that we can pull together and pull through this, but the hardships are very real for many of us. So I hope that you stay safe and healthy, both physically and mentally, and keep actively engaging with others however you can. I think now more than ever is a crucial time to reflect mindfully about power in our society and the way media plays a role in constituting and enforcing various social structures of meaning. And so in today's episode, I want to spend time unpacking representations through a series of reflective and ideological examples. That's all coming up in just a moment, but first it's time for retrospect. The last two weeks have been a time of growing concerns over the coronavirus, as the World Health Organization declared a global pandemic on March 12th. Back on the 12th, the number of COVID-19 cases had topped 127,000. Today, as I'm recording this episode on March 26th, the number of cases has surpassed 509,000, with over 77,000 cases in the US. In some cities, people are waiting in lines to shop for groceries, and protective care at medical facilities in some areas is woefully lacking, putting healthcare professionals at unnecessary risk. My attention is drawn overwhelmingly to New York, which is my home and where so much of my family is, and which seems to be hit with the majority of reported cases in the US thus far. But I'm also focusing on the way coronavirus is treated in media, not just in news media, but film, television, and social media. Social media in particular is not focused on much else at the moment, and it has direct impacts on the shape of social distancing and the social life of all of us navigating the virus. Particularly of concern are increased acts of racist hate speech and ostracization against Chinese people or even people presumed to be Chinese in public and private spaces around the world. Racist acts are not just being targeted toward Chinese people, There are people all over the world susceptible to increased xenophobia and emboldened hate. In a recent interview with Democracy Now! reporter Amy Goodman, Elizabeth Oyang, the former president of the civil rights organization OCA New York, said the following. There's a big difference in saying that the virus originated in China versus calling it a Chinese virus. By calling it a Chinese virus, it is um, implying for people who have limited interaction with persons of Asian descent and information about how this virus is spread, that it's people who are Chinese or they think are Chinese who have this virus. Um, And this leads to a domino effect of both economic ostracization as well as social ostracization that um, leads to people not 
going to Chinese uh, business establishments because they're afraid uh, that they have the virus, or um, it, on the other extreme, it leads to hate crimes that we've seen, you know, from California to New York. The virus and COVID-19's effects on the body is a concern, but so too is the social impact of fear and displacement during a global pandemic. With so many people on lockdown, the limits of our capitalist structure reveal themselves, and it's up to us to address xenophobia and protect vulnerable members of our community, not only for the sake of stopping the transmission of the virus, but for the sake of stopping the transmission of hate. I hope everyone does what they can to stay safe during this time. Keep your distance from others if you can and protect yourself by staying in contact with friends, family, and community for support. The response from US and many other governments has been extremely not good. So it's up to us to shape how we want our community response to look. Before delving into representation in today's main focus, I want to take a moment to highlight an artist, Marina Sati, a singer-songwriter from Athens, whose style blends both traditional and world themes in a vocal-driven way. Marina studied music at UC Berkeley, focusing on Arabic and Greek music, and in 2016 released her single Coupes, an original contemporary rendition of a traditional Asian minor song. That same year, in 2016, she founded Phonus an acapella group that performs a variety of songs inspired from the Mediterranean and beyond. Phonas performed at the recent Womadelaide Festival, the World Music, Arts, and Dance Festival, on March 6th, probably one of the last events before the global pandemic was of concern enough to close down large events like the festival. More information about Womadelaide Festival can be found in today's show notes. Here's a brief snippet of Phonas performing on their recent set on Transmusicalis KEXP. I will link to that recent performance on KEXP and more in today's show notes. Today's main focus is about representations. I'm using the plural of representation here to acknowledge the dynamic ways representations can and do function in media discourse. 
Representations can function at the surface level of a narrative as reflective representations, in the way a story can represent a multitude of perspectives and a wide range of diverse subjects. Reflective representations are seen as important for the ways we engage a narrative or can find familiarity within a discourse, but reflective representations also impact our broader awareness of and interaction with subjects. The key here is that reflective representations are subjective, and the language of reflection can help reveal the centrality of media in those representations. The more we focus on the way reflections function, the more it becomes evident that there is no singular image in subjects to reflect. There's no one fixed reality that provides a singular answer to what a correct representation might be. So media should not be presumed as a neutral platform or a neutral technology through which ideas can be blanketly represented. Behind reflective representations, there are deeper motives that stem from social existence. And so not only does media serve to shape representations, it constitutes future representations through the exertion of power. I want to explore today how media is wielded as this tool of enforcing power over subjects. I first want to introduce representations more broadly, and then discuss a few common narrative techniques that are used in various media representations to point out how these techniques are manipulations that attempt to obscure reality. And after I introduce that structure, I want to share the story of the Florida State University mascot and point at some examples for how the conversation is framed with the same obscuring intent. Given global society inequities perpetuated through capitalism and colonial frameworks, negotiating media representations is the negotiation of power relationships. Most of what we know to be important or impactful stems from media narratives, produced and shared through large platforms with the capital to influence, typically behind the scenes, how those narratives are to be shared. This influence impacts what we think we know and often what we care about. Quite literally, the structure of media has direct impacts on how we imagine ourselves and how we negotiate others. As I explored in the previous two episodes, settings and subjects are often treated categorically in narratives, particularly as a means to represent marginalization, which has the effect of perpetuating marginalization. Media narratives increasingly categorize and reduce subjects, particularly in modes of marginalized identity, and these representations negatively impact the way audiences are encouraged to think about multifaceted issues like race, gender, and sexuality. That issues are addressed broadly, objectively, instead of from the perspective of the people who are most impacted by them, also reveals a gap between recognizing inequity and working to address it. The late Stuart Hall spoke about the constitutive meaning of media in his work. In a lecture recorded in 1997, Hall said the following. I think the truth is that in cultural studies now and in a great deal of media studies work, that notion of representation is regarded as too literal, too literal and too straightforward. And uh, the reason for that is because we want to ask the question of whether uh, events, uh, 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 the meaning of people, groups, what they're doing, etc., whether these things do have any one essential, fixed, or true meaning against which we could measure, as it were, the level of distortion in the way in which they're represented. Suppose one says, Yes, I can see that people are meeting now in Northern Ireland to discuss the Northern Ireland situation. 
But what it means, what is the meaning of that meaning of that meeting, is a very complicated thing to decide. You'd have to know not only the whole history of what led up to it, you'd have to know what each of the participants wants out of it, you'd have to know some assessment of what the consequences of that event are likely to be, before you could say, what is the meaning? And we all know per absolutely clearly, the one thing you can be certain of is that there will never be one interpretation of what is going on in, in Northern Ireland today. Absolutely, there will, it will always be a contested question. There will never be a finally settled, fixed meaning. The one thing you can say about those events is that there is no one true fixed meaning about it. Well, now, this is a different situation. In a way, what we're saying now is that representation doesn't really capture the process at all, because there was nothing absolutely fixed there in the first place to represent. Of course, there was something. People are meeting, they're talking, they're arguing with one another, they're going to take decisions, consequences will follow. So, not that nothing is happening in the world, but what is dubious is what is the true meaning of it. And the true meaning of it will depend on what meaning people make of it. And the meanings that they make of it depends on how it is represented. True meaning, as Hall says, is an important concept to deconstruct, because it goes to the heart of how categorical assumptions engender broadly simplified ways of approaching subjects, particularly groups of subjects who are presumed to belong to specific groups. In Hall's example, negotiating what the Northern Ireland situation means is a common way topical discourse navigates issues in media. In many representations, meaning, in its reductive form, is embedded within the media. The effectiveness of what I will call reductive meaning is not that it helps people understand things more generally, because it absolutely does not. It should be fairly obvious, but grand generalizations of complex issues do not facilitate better understandings in any way, and they don't help us communicate. Through media representations, generalizations or categorizations serve as a shared language that communicates obscured or hidden meanings relevant to a particular group within a broader audience. This is the framework, for example, of so-called dog whistle politics. The analogy of the dog whistle, of course, refers to the frequency of the whistle being only audible to a certain group. Dog whistle politics essentially refers to politicians who, in their use of language and other forms of media, adopt certain modes of speech designed to seem benign to a broader public, but to evoke feelings of solidarity among targeted members of the populace. The analogy of the dog whistle itself is crude because the type of language used in dog whistle politics is targeted toward underlying fears and generalizations that politicians use to manipulate audiences. There is typically no useful or factual truth to generalized subjective representations, but in media they are powerful narratives that constitute modes of domination over subjects. The effectiveness of dog whistle politics reveals the complexity with how audiences tend to engage narratives, even while obscuring that complexity. If we are primed to read some narrative subjects in complex ways, but content to dismiss other subjects categorically according to generalized or conventional representations, the function of power in media representation reveals itself. The lasting effectiveness of using dog whistle style language in narratives is that its effectiveness is bound in a willing consent for audiences who want to participate in its framework. 
If politicians in positions of power wield media as a mode of their particular generalization, what communicates to audiences is the power itself. Representations, then, constitute modes of participation in various structures of power. So representations shape and guide broader understanding. They reveal embedded assumptions and generalizations. And negotiating representations is enacting and participating in power. Even without pointing directly at this ideology, I think most of us understand the strong impact of representations through media. Which is why locating the control over how subjects participate in their own representations is directly related to justice work. Calls for more diversity in media representations have become more recognizable in global narratives, perhaps in part due to the internet and digital culture. Yet the way diversity as a concept is addressed in media spaces continues to demonstrate a top-down lack of understanding or of care for subjects. The same categorical imagination of reductive meaning I mentioned earlier is often used to negotiate diversity itself. If we could zoom in for a moment, one good example of this framework of representations in dominant media narratives is the character of Apu in the long-running popular animated show The Simpsons. Apu was voiced by Hank Azaria, a white man who did several voices on the show. The voice Hank enacted for the character of Apu, an Indian immigrant to the US, was the stereotypical racist type of patanking, modeled after the kind that Peter Sellers originally employed in his own acting. In any event, you don't even have to unpack the origins of the Apu character or the way the character is acted to encounter problems inherent to the character. Apu is a racist caricature designed categorically for predominantly white and mainstream US audiences to share in laughing at Apu, who, as much as he is a cartoon character, is also the embodiment of numerous categorical South Asian stereotypes. The filmmaker and comedian Hari Kondabolu describes the impact of this form of racist representation in his highly recommended 2017 film, The Problem with Apu. In the film, Hari interviews several media personalities to explore the concept of representation and, quite literally, the way in which Apu serves as a popularized depiction of racist ideas of Indian immigrants among mainstream US audiences. In one of those interviews, Hari talks with Whoopi Goldberg about her personal collection of black Americana, and the two unpack how Apu as a character functions much like an example of minstrelsy. Anyway, that interview and film are both highly recommended, and the character of Apu serves as a perfect example of the negotiation of representations that I've introduced. In a 2018 interview with Kumkum Bhavani, where Hari is talking about his film, Hari contextualized how capitalism and the status quo are at the center of understanding why representations in media are more complex than simply showing more categorical representations of others. You know, we talk about the history of minstrelsy in this country. Let me first say that I think um, the kinds of depictions of South Asians is not equivalent to the depictions, for example, of black Americans in this country. I feel like there's a very different racial history. There's a different set of, you know, uh, you know, conditions that people came to this country. Like you, they can't be compared in that regard. However, there's a lineage, yeah. this lineage of mocking the other, putting the other in their place. Um, and it's not, you know, and I think Whoopi makes this point, it's not to be mean. It's not to harm necessarily. You know, perhaps with the caricatures, the political caricatures, that's one thing, but with entertainment, it's not that. When people are having these racist images, these racist images on cookie jars, it's to sell cookie jars. It's not to harm people. When Dana Gould talks about, you know, uh, the character, like if you take, like Apu has a certain set of moves. If you don't use the, those moves, Apu isn't funny anymore. It, it's because 
if I if we stop making Apu funny in this particular way, he's no longer effective. That lowers the value of the show. Hmm. So the cookie jars and, and Apu's like stereotypical jokes, they're the same thing. It's the same thing. It's not hard. It's not trying to be harmful. It's it's capitalism. We got to keep the thing going. I don't have time to think. I got to create another cookie jar. I don't have time. So that's the thing. Like when things mutate, it's not because people are being mean to each other. That's simple. We're not children. It, there's there's a benefit in racism. There's a financial benefit in racism. There's a you know it, it's it's to also to reestablish power relations. Like this is where you are. This is where I am. Like this is that's how this works. In media spaces, diversity as a concept is often treated in terms of its broader function, irrespective of the individual lived experiences and identities of dynamic subjects. As such, calls for more diverse representation are in a way reduced to marketable moments where those people who have maintained a position of control over the apparatus of the media itself, whether we're talking about film, television, news, video games, and so on, those people in a position of power incorporate calls for diversity into their business model as a means to perpetuate profit. With respect to Hari's sense that the people doing this are not intending harm, I would argue that any singular reductive representation as imposed by any imagined framework is a conscious narrative choice that positions an idea in a dependent framework and, subsequently, constitutes a hierarchy between subjects. Even if harm may not be the intent, it's the obvious outcome, so much so that any categorical reductive representation really only amounts to what we might call misrepresentation. A very typical form of this misrepresentation is called tokenism, and it is a particularly harmful way of maintaining control over subjects because it obscures the inaction of those in positions of power behind a facade of inclusion, and it skews the collective understanding of subjective representations by only allowing inclusion through a very categorical or reductive lens. This is a manipulation of discourse about representations. The quintessential example of this framework is somebody saying, I'm not homophobic, I have gay friends, or I'm not racist, I have black friends. In other words, tokenism tries to appropriate the appearance of diversity without actually changing where the narrative's power and the subject's participation are centralized. Tokenism translates into other social spaces as well. For example, institutional calls for diversity to address ableism might be reduced to counting the number of disabled people who are affiliated with that institution. Calls for racial diversity are reduced to pointing at the people of color present. Members of marginalized communities have their identity in media representations reduced to a categorical sense of their belonging, which impacts the way these categories are negotiated in other social spaces. When a person of color is treated in a group as a representative of all people of color, that is the byproduct of tokenism present in media spaces. Media doesn't create these reductive categorical imaginations of others, rather it teaches people how to enact categorical biases and reinforces the meaningfulness of those actions and assumptions. These examples reveal that diversity in media is often measured against the historical power structure that has contributed to the marginalization of people. Adding more marginalized people into narratives without addressing the underlying power inequities that create marginalization perpetuates embedded categorical assumptions and perpetuates marginalization itself. Tokenism distracts from the status quo maintaining dominance over the representation of a group. But this shallow form of categorical framing is also used in less overt ways. Queer coding, for example, is the process of framing certain characters in narratives as queer based on actions and personality traits that are coded as such. 
Typically, in the history of film and television, and more recently in animation, video games, and various news spaces, queer coding is applied to characters who occupy a space of deviance or criminality. So this is clearly problematic, in that in queer coding, the primary subjects depicted in some way as LGBTQ are associated with a socially negative identity. It reveals the troubling social assumption in mainstream society that queer characters were themselves socially deviant. It is so baffling that it is even a trope in some narratives to show how representations of queer people would be offensive to audiences. There is rarely a historical piece over the last two decades that does not in some way point out the glaring issues with queer representation from the past. The problem is compounded, however, in that even though we can collectively recognize the misrepresentations of queer coding, functionally in the mainstream we still see queer stories pressed into extremely marginal spaces. Queer coding as deviance is much less the norm in narratives today, but something that has taken its place has been called queer baiting. This is the process of hinting that certain characters may be queer without actually depicting them as such. This may be done through a homoerotic scene or through insinuation based on proximity. The implications of queerbaiting point to the guise of inclusivity without actually changing the meta-narrative, and the meta-implications of queerbaiting reveal that those in control of the media apparatus are interested in profiting from the implications of diversity without actually challenging the exclusionary frameworks that their narratives work to perpetuate. In other words, queer coding depicts queerness as deviant, while queer baiting does the same thing beneath a facade of diversity or inclusivity, effectively obscuring the reality of the representation simply by claiming, this narrative can't be homophobic because it has queer characters in it. These examples reveal that the primary strategy from people in positions of power is to trivialize and dismiss critique publicly in various forms of media, and in doing so, reassert control over common sense or categorical understandings from their normalizing perspective. This is driven by capitalism and done with the intent to maintain power, but this manipulation of the narrative is a refusal to discuss racism, ableism, homophobia, transphobia, and other forms of categorical reductions. Finally, in my exploration of the process of representations today, I want to discuss indigenous representation and the topic of mascots through the example of Florida State University. It's notable in media that critique of representations is also sometimes reframed as a false binary of a narrative's status as either offensive or funny. The way this framework is employed in media often positions anyone offended as taking things too seriously. But we can also see this quite readily in the example of the institutional use of indigenous stereotypes as mascots. It's almost impossible for me to find media reporting on the topic of indigenous people as mascots without seeing the story framed around the question, is this or is this not offensive? I think that particular question is dismissive of the very real subjective issues at work, and I'm not about to qualify that question here. We can recognize in that question, though, the deeper implications of how indigenous identity is imagined in mainstream North American media in particular. And as I said earlier, media representations have a direct impact on reductive imaginations. So I'm not interested in that question about offense because I think it misses the point. But in exploring briefly the story of the Florida State University mascot, the Seminoles, represented at present by so-called Chief Osceola, presents, I think, the quintessential example of how representations constitute modes of participation in various structures of power. FSU, as an institution, has not budged on the issue of using indigenous symbols or stereotypes as mascots, despite the recent collective push toward banning the practice after years of indigenous protest. 
FSU instead has employed the approval of local tribal leaders of the Florida Seminole Nation in order to legitimize their institution's racist appropriation. There is a deep amount of injustice in this, not only in the ongoing violation of indigenous sovereignty of land considering how the institution was formed historically, or in the regular ritual of a student painting his face, riding an Appaloosa onto a football field and throwing a flaming spear into the turf. But in terms, specifically, of media representations, there is the baffling presumption that indigenous voices are worth listening to only when they accept how they are being reduced and mistreated. I was also shocked that this issue is treated as a debate in the media. It's notable that the so-called debate is one dominated by the voices of white men. In a letter published in 2015 on FSU News in the Opinion column, Alex Gaskin writes compellingly about this issue in an open letter to the then president of the institution. Alex writes, Many supporters of the mascot name tend to cling to our partnership with the Seminole Tribe of Florida in order to justify the appropriation of the Seminole name. And while our partnership does help both the Florida tribe's economy and tourism, it does not give us immunity from criticism. In fact, most Seminole people now live in Oklahoma, a region they were forced to relocate to due to the ethnic cleansing by the U.S. government in the early 1800s. Oklahoma's Seminole Nation records approximately 17,000 members and passed a 2013 resolution asserting, quote, the Seminole Nation condemns the use of all American Indian sports team mascots in the public school system, by college and university level and by professional teams, end quote according to a 2014 article published by The Nation. Prominent indigenous activist and Seminole Nation member David Narcomi told News OK in 2011 that the use of native imagery and stereotypes as mascots results in harmful psychological effects that promote low self-esteem, low self-image. It promotes racism, cultural discrimination, religious discrimination. Narcomi also likened the portrayal of Osceola to a minstrel show. To make matters worse, Less than 0.5% of FSU students identify as native. This is a university that reduces the rich history of the Seminole people down to a warrior trope, while a university founded by white people with primarily white people in positions of power and a largely white student demographic performs war chants, tomahawk chops, and shouts for our teams to scalp them, while insisting doing so is not racist because a small section of the seminal population takes no offense from it. Is this not the institutional epitome of, I have a black friend? Media doesn't only shape representations, it constitutes future representations through the exertion of power. Can we confront actual truths and meanings of people through media representations? I think we can but only through developing space for correcting inequities by centralizing the voices of historically marginalized people. And that would be a welcome change from the general practice in media at present. Categorical reductive misrepresentations stem from social inequities, and these inequities continue to be perpetuated and legitimized in media spaces, where media as an apparatus plays the role of actively teaching audiences how to negotiate subjects in reductive ways. Echoing Stuart Hall again, I'll close by saying that the many multifaceted meanings people make of a subject depend on how that subject is being represented. As such, representations become the site of power negotiations in social space, and they should be where we focus our greatest attention as we participate and engage in media narratives. And that's our episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you're taking good care and that you're safe and healthy. 
If you like what I'm working on here, please consider supporting this work on Patreon. Patrons receive behind-the-scenes access to our Discord community and to the development notes for each episode, as well as access to the music heard in this podcast. Episode transcripts and other notes can be found on our website at ethnomedialog.com. You can find the link in today's show notes, along with sources for this episode and other relevant links. I look forward to having you back again next time here on the Ethnomedialog.